Hey, Ebb Sass Snacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sass Snack Files. This week, we're discussing 507, The Ballad of Roger Mack. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sass Snack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sass Snack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outland seasons six and seven, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of season five, episode seven, The Ballad of Roger Mack. This episode always gives me all the feels. Hashtag all the feels, guys. There are moments that I cry, moments that I laugh, moments that I completely swoon. It is so great. My favorite episode by far of season five. I know that that's a contentious statement because a lot of people absolutely love the season five finale. And that's fair. It's a great episode as well. But 507 totally does it for me. Lots to talk about today. So without further ado, I'm just going to dive right in. The opening scene of this episode is a Roger and Brie moment, and I really actually enjoyed it. I know that Roger and Brie aren't typically an enjoyable part of the show for a lot of show watchers, which I find heartbreaking, but also semi-fascinating because I love Roger and Brie. And I felt like this scene was a really great way for us to kind of begin to understand their relationship because they're both completely and utterly terrified of what's about to happen and they're both trying really hard to be strong for each other. But I love the way that this scene was shot, especially when we get the camera angle of the camera looking over Roger's shoulder and he's wringing his hands. It's really powerful because you just know what's going through his mind without actually having him say anything, which I think is absolutely phenomenal. Stephen Wolfenden is one of my favorite directors for the Outlander series. I haven't really seen much of what else he has done, but as far as the Outlander verse is concerned, Stephen Wolfenden rocks it every time he is directing. And we haven't had the rest of the season six directors announced. I'm really, really hoping, like just holding out hope that he actually directed a block. But yeah, I felt like he did a fantastic job getting inside the characters' heads in this moment, in this episode, period. And one of the biggest things for Roger, I mean, of course he's afraid of dying. Who wouldn't be? And Roger is a man of peace. I've said it before. I think that's one of the things that separates Jamie and Roger a lot is Jamie automatically jumps to physical altercation a lot of times because that's what's easiest. But That's not what comes naturally to Roger. Roger would much rather talk things out. And so he never envisioned himself being in a situation where he was going to have to go to war. And knowing his family history, his father died when he was very young. So young, in fact, that Roger barely remembers him. And I think that that more than anything is what's plaguing Roger in this moment is that he's taking the risk of his son not remembering who he is. And that has to be extremely painful. They pass it off with this little line because Roger's singing Clementine to Jemmy and it's his favorite. And so at the end of the scene, you know, he's like, just in case I don't come back, you remember all the words to Clementine. He's trying 
to put a brave face on, and I appreciate that about him. And Brienne is the exact same way. She's saying, you know, I'm no singer, so you're going to have to hurry back. And then after he leaves, the mask falls away and she is just as terrified as he is. So I really love this opening scene. It sets the tone for this episode extremely well with a very sweet family moment, but this undercurrent of foreboding. So the second scene that we get is also a moment between a couple. It's a Jamie and Claire scene. And I find it interesting that these are the first two scenes of this episode and we get an unquestioned parallel to Jamie's reference to his dead father and Roger's reference to his dead father. It's Jamie's birthday, May 1st, for all of you (laughs) that didn't know that. It opens up with, again, the body language, a close-up of hands. Jamie is looking at his hands and I'll tell you what, This is kind of off subject, but every time I see the scars on Jamie's hand, the hand that he's flexing in this first shot, I get chills and it is impossible for me as a viewer to not think back to what happened to him to give him those scars. I love that this scene in particular with him and Claire is all about taking stock and appreciating the life that you've lived, given that those scars are a constant reminder of the pain and suffering Jamie has already accrued in his life. It's pretty tragic. So Jamie is talking to Claire about how it's the morning of his 50th birthday and it's a morning that his father never lived to see because his father died when he was 49. I think that in a lot of ways, Jamie feels adrift a little bit. I think it's easy for you to kind of watch your parents live their lives before you and model your life after them. And this is uncharted territory for Jamie. Actually, in the books, him and Claire have a conversation about this because Claire has experienced similar vibes. Her mother died in her 30s, I believe. And so... Claire experienced that as well, where she's like, this is a morning that my mother never lived to see. It's got to be a moment of conflicting emotions because on the one hand, it's your birthday and you're happy to have lived the life that you've lived. But at the same time, there's that overwhelming sense of loss, that constant reminder that your parents aren't with you anymore. So I get that moment for Jamie. I love that Claire is saying, yeah, but I'm sure he would be thrilled to know that you're alive and you have children and grandchildren who love you. Because I think in the end, that's what Jamie really, he knows that, you know, but it's what he needs to hear as well. And that leads to the perfect line. Jamie has several in this episode. The first of which is the world and each day in it is a gift. And whatever tomorrow brings, I'll be happy to see it. I really find that ironic that that is the line we open up with. Given what tomorrow is going to bring, I think Jamie is probably regretting those words a little bit because it proves to be a hellish rest of the episode. Pretty awful, in fact, and I couldn't help but thinking about that as we go through Murta's death and Roger's hanging. It's just like as if that day could not be worse. Well, it's like, hold my beer. (laughs) It's really just awful. And then you get the sex scene at the end. I mean, Jamie's like, oh, you know, I still have all my teeth. None of my parts are missing. My cock still stands up in the morning, Claire. (laughs) Hey, you want a quickie? (laughs) 
it was a really great moment. And then when Claire sings happy birthday to Jamie, oh, man, I was like, Claire is the OG Marilyn Monroe. Jamie is totally digging it. And I found it funny. So you'll notice as this episode progresses that I have a lot of little behind the scenes tidbits because I was obsessed with this episode throughout season five and it was Sam's favorite episode as well. So there are a lot of little behind the scenes informational bits that I have for this episode that I don't necessarily have for others. So I'll try to throw them in wherever I can. It was funny, the happy birthday singing was not included in the script. It was just supposed to be a straight up sex scene. And during rehearsal, Katrina just jokingly put on her best Marilyn Monroe voice and started singing, happy birthday to you. (laughs) And the powers that be fell in love with it. And they're like, oh my God, we have to do it. So from the time of rehearsal until literally the time of shooting, it was the onset producers on the phone with the corporate lawyers at Stars trying to figure out if legally they could have happy birthday in the script. It turns out that it was written long enough ago that it was in the public domain which is a legit thing um, because I actually had to research that for my novel. So yes, Happy Birthday is in the public domain and they were free to use it in this episode of Outlander. So that is a Katrina Adlib. Rock on, girl, because that was really great. One of my favorite parts of that scene, honestly. From here, the episode kind of splits every which way. I'm going to try to streamline it and talk about topics instead of scenes because otherwise I kind of feel like I'll be dodging back and forth and it'll just get messy. So I'm going to discuss Roger's whole story for the rest of the episode. Whenever Brianna remembers finally that the Battle of Alamance was a legit thing and that the regulators lose, she runs off to find her parents and Roger. And Jamie, God bless him. No matter what happens in history, he still believes that they can change the future. And you would think after the events of season two and trying to prevent the Battle of Culloden and the Jacobite Rebellion and all of that, you would think that he would get the point that you can't change these massive battles. But I also get that he wouldn't be able to live with himself if he didn't try to help Myrta and help the regulators because it is a really shitty situation. The crux of it is that Jamie himself can't go across the creek and talk to the regulators and talk to Myrta because he's too much of a prominent and obvious figure. If Jamie took off and went across the creek, Governor Tryon would hear about it and it would be really bad. So Roger is really the only person that can go. And I think Roger 100% agrees with Jamie that If they don't put their best foot forward and at least attempt to prevent this battle, they won't be able to live with themselves. So he's also kind of feeling more confident in his decision-making skills and his ability to make the right decision. And so he volunteers to go across the creek because he knows that Jamie would if he could, but he can't. And so somebody needs to. Myrta will believe Roger because he knows Roger is from the future and If Roger says that the regulators don't win, then the regulators don't win. I think that this is a moment in time where Jamie really starts to respect Roger because he fully realizes how dangerous this situation is that Roger is walking into. And he knows that Roger appreciates that as well. 
I think all the while, Jamie is probably still thinking back to that conversation that he had with Claire where she's like, keep him out of it, keep him out of danger. And so initially he's like, no, it's too dangerous. I can't let you go. And Roger's like, no, I want to go and I need to do this. Jamie appreciates that Roger is willing to take a risk for him and for Myrta and does everything he can to ensure that he comes back safely. Of course, that ends up being a huge failure. And I'm sure that at the end of this episode, that is a lot of Jamie's devastation. But we'll talk about that here in a couple minutes. Roger goes across the creek. While he's across the creek, he has a couple of really, really great scenes with Myrta. The first of which is after Myrta has all of his dialogue about, you know, his blood will stain this ground. Yes, very dramatic. And then Myrta's like, what the hell are you doing here, Mackenzie? <laughs> and Roger's like, I had to tell you that the regulators lose. And it's this really fantastic scene where I think that Duncan and Rick do Great work, honestly. Roger is doing his best to get through to Myrta that there's no way on God's green earth that the regulators are going to win because the government troops are well-trained and then there's militia that are trained on top of that. And then on top of that, the artillery that the government has is just utterly ridiculous. They've got cannons, they've got rifles, you name it, they have it. And the regulators are sharpening scythes and swords. And yeah, they have the occasional gun, but they're not trained. And they sure as hell don't have cannons. And it's like Roger said, he says, Tryon's got cannons for Christ's sakes. Myrta, most of your men have never even seen a cannon. Yeah, you may have twice the number of troops, but that doesn't matter if they're inexperienced and they don't know how to handle a battle situation. I think that Myrta realizes that, but also he's kind of between a rock and a hard place because he's been coaching them towards action. And now all of a sudden... He's supposed to be like, whoa, wait a minute, maybe we should slow our roll. Maybe we should compromise. You know, let's not be too hasty. I get it. Myrta's like, you think they're going to listen to me? Like, you saw them. They're not going to back down. And Roger says, the history has been written. You cannot win. You do not win. And Myrta looks at him and says, then I do fight. Which begs the question, like, what are you doing here, Roger? Like, if you're here to tell me that we don't win because history says so, and you're so full-on believing history that you came here to try to talk me out of it, then what's the point of you trying to talk me out of it? Because if history says I don't win, then obviously history also says that the fight happens. So I find that an interesting point of conversation because Myrta is right. And I don't think that Roger really thought of it that way. I don't think anybody really thought of it that way. But if they lose, then obviously that means that they fight regardless of Myrta's attempts to stop them from fighting. Obviously, when he's given the time to think about it, Myrta's like, well, I have to at least try. Like, I can't let them go to their deaths like this. And he did everything he could. And that's a whole different story. But inaction is inexcusable. In anybody's eyes. That's why this is all happening, because you have to at least try. So the second scene between Myrta and Roger is when Myrta comes back into the tent after he reads Tryon's letter to his men. And he says, I spoke with the men and they won't turn back. 
And Roger kind of shifts gears because he's like, okay, if I can't keep this battle from happening, maybe I can at least keep Myrta from getting caught in the crosshairs. And I think this is where we really start to see how much Jamie and Roger's relationship has evolved because even though they may not have the smoothest relationship, they still have a healthy respect for one another, especially Roger respecting Jamie. And I think we really see that in this conversation because Roger's trying to talk Myrta out of fighting with the regulators. And he tells Myrta, he says, if your men won't, then I urge you, no, Myrta, I beg you, time is running out, leave and save yourself, please, for the love your godson bears you. The fact that Roger cares that much about Jamie and his happiness, like he knows that Jamie would be completely and utterly shattered if something happened to Myrta. And that he throws that in there. He's like, don't do it for me. Don't do it for your men. Do it for Jamie. Please, please, please do it for Jamie. And I think that Roger also knew that was probably his best avenue, his best chance to save Myrta. The consequences of that action is it didn't really keep Myrta out of the fight, but it reminded Myrta of what his true obligations really were and that his obligations weren't to his men, his obligation was to Jamie and to Ellen and the oath that he made to Ellen, which is what ultimately led to his death. So I think that there's kind of, it was Myrta's decision to go back at the end of the day. Like, it's still tragic. It's still sad. I know a lot of people, myself included, were like, oh, it was past time. Okay. Like this needed to happen. But at the same time, I'm still able to fully appreciate that this was a fantastic episode and it was gut-wrenching. It was such a good episode. After everything with Myrta happens and Roger's on his way back over to the other side of the creek, he runs into his like eight times great-grandmother Morag Mackenzie that he originally met on the Gloriana on his way over to America. (laughs) So they tamed this down a little bit. In the books, Roger gives Morag a kiss on the forehead and in the show, he simply hugs her. But nevertheless, it is still the 18th century, and you do not go around showing physical affection to random women, Roger, especially randomly married women, okay? So it was just kind of a facepalm moment. I just smack myself every time I see this. It's like, oh my God, Roger, why? Just why? (laughs) And then it just gets even worse because I honestly think that if Roger had let Morag do the talking and he had just been like, bro, hey, sorry, you know, hit me if you have to, but I I didn't really do anything wrong. (laughs) He probably could have gotten away with, you know, a couple of punches to the gut and that was that. I think Morag probably could have talked Buck off the cliff, but... There's something about Roger's sensibilities when he sees Buck be rough with Morag and sees that he's hurting her and then raises a fist to her. Roger can't control himself. He's like, no, 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 we don't hit women. We don't hit women. And so he hauls off and hits Buck. And I think that was when, like, as soon as he did it, he was like, oh, fuck. But it was too late. His bed was already made. And then the final nail in the coffin was when they found his militia badge. It's not a good moment for Roger. Like, you know that something bad's going to happen. I mean, how could you not? Because first of all, it's Outlander. Second of all, like some random Joe has our beloved Roger Mack unconscious. I mean, I don't think anybody saw this coming. I know when I was reading the books, I was like, 
hold the phone. Like, what? <laughs> what? He's He got hung? <laughs> That was a scarring moment for me. I That was intense. And I couldn't believe that he was still alive, honestly. Like, I expected him to be dead, and I think a lot of people did. And that's certainly how they ended the episode, to leave it on a cliffhanger for all the show watchers. But all they had to do was Google it <laughs> to find out that he survived. But nevertheless, it was a total head fake to see Graham McTavish playing Buck McKenzie, which is Dougal's son. For those that may have missed that, this guy that's attacking Roger is his eight times great-grandfather that just so happens to be the son of Dougal McKenzie and Galus Duncan. So yes, it is a whirlwind hold on to your butts moment. <laughs> and I cannot believe that they were able to keep Graham McTavish's presence on set a secret. Like, I was so shocked. And honestly, I didn't even recognize Graham at first. I was like, that guy kind of looks familiar. And then it like went on to the next scene when I was watching it the first time around. I was like, okay, whatever. And then I watched it the second time and I rewound it. And I was like, oh my God, that's Graham McDavish. <laughs> hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> so I thought that was very clever. And um, kudos to the showrunners. That was a good idea. And I'm glad that Graham was willing to come back to play his character's son. That's very interesting. I am wondering what the future holds for that, though, now that they've set up that precedent. So Roger's hanging. We get more details about that in the next episode, so I won't go too far into it. But just the fact that after this horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day that the Fraser clan has had, that they get to go out and look for Roger, who has just essentially fallen off the face of the earth. Like, nobody knows where he's at. Nobody's seen him. And that he was mistaken for a regulator and hung. The look on Sophie's face. I remember reading an article around the time that this episode came out where Sophie said that she really just wanted Brianna to be absolutely paralyzed by the terror and the horror of the situation, like that she couldn't even fully process it. She was so horrified, just frozen. And I think that she did a fantastic job showing that. And Claire just wraps her arms around Brie and just holds her, even though Brie isn't even really processing at the moment. And the, the look on Jamie's face, like he's just like, oh, Poor guy, he's already lost his godfather and now he's lost his son-in-law and he's got to deal with that. Like there's a line in the Fiery Cross, this whole incident is happening from Claire's point of view and there's a line where she says, Jamie would stand like a rock for Brie, but I would be there for him later when he needed a shoulder to cry on. And it's a really beautiful and moving moment to kind of show how their marriage works, that he is strong because he needs to be. And you kind of did see that in the scene after the whole confrontation with Governor Tryon when Jamie stumbles over to the fire and kind of falls to his knee and he lets himself cry for just a few minutes and then he takes a couple of deep breaths and nods to himself and he pulls himself together and he stands up and he moves forward. Unbelievable strength coming from that character given everything that he's experienced. So I can easily see why this was Sam's favorite episode of the season because it is a humdinger and it was loaded with all kinds of character moments for Jamie. I feel like there was an episode 
for, well, I don't feel like, I know that there was an episode for each of the main characters down the pipe in the back half of season five. Like it was very character driven. So we've got this one, The Ballad of Roger Mack, that was for Jamie. We've got Famous Last Words, which is Roger's. You've got Mercy Shall Follow Me, which was Brianna's. And then Journey Cake is all of them coming together and then Never My Love was Claire's. All of them have their strengths. They're all great episodes. Some I did like more than others, and I think that's just by personal preference because I know some people that liked episodes that I didn't necessarily like. But this episode for sure was a strong one for Jamie, and it gave Sam so many opportunities to shine and show his acting chops. I was so proud to be a Sam Hewen fan when I watched this episode because he really is just fantastic. We get the famous red coat moment. This was something that Sam came up with on his own. He approached Matt Roberts about it when they were still filming season four. He knew that they were writing the season five scripts and he went to Matt and he said, hey, is there any way that we could do this? Like, I feel like this is a great visual representation of the line that Jamie is having to walk. Like, it's really going to bring things front and center for the audience and kind of show what he's going through. And Matt thought it was a great idea. They got the costume department involved. They got Tony Graffia involved, who wrote this episode. I know it's not historically accurate, and I know it didn't happen in the books, and a lot of people struggle with that. But honestly, guys, you have to acknowledge the magnitude of that kind of thing happening on a show like this. It's Jamie wearing a red coat, okay? Like, the same Jamie that fought for the Jacobites against the Redcoats. The same Jamie who was held prisoner and raped and tortured by a Redcoat. The same Jamie whose family was terrorized after the Jacobite Rising of 45 by the Redcoats. The last person on the face of the earth that you would ever, ever, ever expect to see in a British officer's uniform is Jamie Fraser. And Tryon pushes his weight around, reminds Jamie of how much he fucking owes him and forces him into a situation that he doesn't want to be in. And I think maybe just as powerful to Jamie's visceral negative reaction to having to wear a red coat is his men's reaction to him wearing that red coat. Because if you look at the faces of John Quincy Myers, Ronnie Sinclair, and the Lindsay brothers, when the camera pans over to them, they are trying really hard not to make eye contact with anybody because they're just as appalled as he is, and they know how much it kills him to give in to Tryon. I think the most powerful moment of it all is when Tryon walks away and Jamie reaches out and takes his hat from John Quincy, puts his hat on, and he looks up into the camera. And it is this fantastically goosebump-inducing cinematic moment that I think is probably one of the most iconic moments of the show thus far. It is just, it's something I will always think about when I think of 507, The Ballad of Roger Mack. There is so much emotion in Sam's face. There's hatred. There's humiliation. It's just all bubbling under the surface that he can't believe he let himself be weaseled into this situation and that he now has to parade out onto the battlefield knowing in his heart that he would side with the regulators, but that he can't 
and he's been backed into a corner. And I love that when he goes to say goodbye to Claire and he's wearing this uniform, Claire just kind of looks at him with her chin on the ground and goes, Jesus H. Roosevelt Christ. Because <laughs> we're all thinking it like, holy shit. And Jamie says, Tryon insisted. And she looks at him and says, I'm guessing you weren't in a position to refuse. And that is basically the story of Jamie for the first half of season five. It's just he's not in a position to refuse. He has nothing to gain and everything to lose by putting his foot down and not agreeing to do these things that Tryon is asking him to do. I honestly think that I like this portion of the show more than I like it in the books because... There's more at stake for Jamie now than there was in the books. In the books, it was just, okay, we'll go through the motions and I'll draw up a militia and we'll fight on the side of the government because I have to. As much as Myrta being alive has kind of pushed Roger's character onto the chopping block a lot of the time, it also allows us to sympathize with Jamie and care more about his storyline. So there's a give and a take there. I know that some of my book reading friends get really pissed off when we talk about this. And and honestly, like, I'm the kind of show watcher that I'm like, it gives me something really great to watch. And I'm not upset about that at all. <laughs> so I guess that's where I'm at. I'm not upset about it. In fact, I really, really loved it. So we get to this scene with Jamie and Claire where they're talking about him wearing the red coat. And he came to say goodbye to her. And I was getting all kinds of vibes of how I felt watching the episode Preston Pans in season two, because it is that sweet goodbye, knowing it could be the last time that you talk to one another ever before a battle. Claire says, well, I can't let you leave without saying something I guess good luck will do. And then she says, I love you, soldier. I love that she calls him soldier. Honestly, that is one of the most adorable things about their relationship. I don't know why I love it so much, but I really do. It's something that she's called him that from the very first episode, and it, it's endearing to me. He has a really cute line where he says, good luck will do. I love you. It's so much better. And then another one of his epic Jamie Fraser lines where he says, about that obituary Brie brought us, I don't know if it's true, but what I do know is this. Someday we may part again, but it will not be today. <laughs> oh, I love so many good Jamie lines, guys. I need to do a podcast where I just talk about my top Jamie lines. That could be like an hour and a half long podcast just on its own, let's be honest. So that leads into the entire Battle of Alamance, which I don't really have too much to mention. I thought some of the fight choreography was good. I loved the descent in the ranks feeling. Tryon is really starting to lose control over his people in the colony of North Carolina. And I think as a lot of people in power do, when they start to feel that control slip, they try to hold on tighter and make more reckless decisions. The example that I'm thinking of is when he says, fire, goddamn you, fire on them or fire on me, which is a legit thing. It actually happened in history. That was a line that came out of Governor William Tryon's mouth at the Battle of Alamance because the militia hesitated. 
to fire on the regulators because they're not the military firing on a foreign enemy. This is neighbor firing on neighbor. A lot of the militia members knew the people that they were shooting at. And that had to be so hard, especially when you get moments like at the beginning of this episode where Tryon's bragging about all the cannon and artillery that he's got with him. And Jamie steps up and says, the regulators aren't going to have anything like this. He sees how unfair it is. And he's not the only one that sees it. He's maybe the one that can voice his opinion, but he's not the only one that feels that way. I think we see that reflected in how the militia acted whenever they were standing there at the Battle of Alamance. Of course, the best example of dissent in the ranks is when Jamie throws the red coat down at Tryon's feet after the battle. It was just, again, a moment where you have to acknowledge the looks on his men's face when the camera flicks to them and they're just like, yeah, you did. You know, they know. They're like, okay, all right, we got Jamie back. He's done with this shit. Because those are his men. We talk about what Jamie went through and how terrible it is for Jamie to have to wear a red coat. But the men that follow him, they also were Jacobites that he met in Ardsmere. All of his men on the ridge are his fellow Ardsmere prisoners that call him McDo and they follow him because they respect him for his actions and his choices. And because he was the only Jacobite officer in that entire prison and they automatically looked to him for leadership. As Jamie told Claire in the third season during First Wife, he had to go back for them because he was their leader and he couldn't abandon them. I think he probably felt that by putting that red coat on, he might have lost a little bit of their respect. And seeing what his choices have gotten him by allying himself with Tryon, it got Myrta killed in his eyes. I mean, this is grief talking. He's not going to stand for it anymore. He did his job. He fulfilled his obligation and he's done. Which was a really good thing to see because we've known for a while that's not what Jamie really believes in. He's doing it because he has to, which is the worst sort of situation to see your favorite character put in, that they're, they've are they been backed into a corner and they've allied themselves with someone that doesn't have their best interest at heart. That really sucks to watch. I mean, it keeps you on the edge of your seat, but it's also heartbreaking at the same time. And in this confrontation between Jamie and Tryon, There is this fantastic monologue that Sam has, first off, to recognize the fact that he is completely and utterly devastated, like to get yourself worked up that much, like the quiver in his chin. Oh, man, I would love to know his process for getting into character mentally for those kinds of scenes, because I just can't fathom bringing that sort of emotion into my brain to play a role. That's just super intense. Tryon walks up to him and says... What we accomplished here today will be written about in history. And Jamie says, Will it be written in history, sir, that you killed and maimed and paid no heed to the destruction you left, that you brought cannon upon your own citizens? No. No, it will say that you put down rebellion, preserved order, punished wickedness, did justice in the king's name, but you and I both know what happened here. There is the law and there is what is done. And what you have done is kindle a war for the sake of your own glory. Mic drop and walk away. (laughs) Oh my God. It was so good to see Jamie have that moment where he's like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm done with this shit. I'm going home because it's been a long time coming and it sucks that something as terrible and tragic as losing his godfather had to happen before it was the final straw. So Myrta's death. Obviously, the big point of discussion for this episode is 
terrible. Like it rips out my heart every time I watch it. I think that they did a fantastic job. All the actors and the choreography of it all. It was just beautiful. But hands down, I have to give all the credit to Sam Hewen because it's his performance that brings tears to my eyes. And if it were anybody else, I don't know that I would have had that same reaction. The level of guilt that Jamie probably feels for Myrta's death on a couple of different levels, Myrta dying is inadvertently Jamie's fault because in the beginning of this episode, Jamie sat down with these two young boys and told them, look, war is killing, plain and simple, and you can't look out for yourself or you'll be dead by nightfall. You just have to act and think later. And that's what this boy did. He saw a regulator approaching Jamie and he shot. That's it. And it just so happened that that regulator was Myrta. And that's the tragedy of it. So I'm sure that to a certain extent, Jamie blames himself in that regard. But also Myrta's obligation to Jamie is what brought him back into this situation. Even though Jamie released him from his oath, that didn't keep Myrta from holding up his end of the bargain with Ellen. And that's what he tells Jamie. He gave his life for Jamie. And I think that that is the most poetic ending that you could give Myrta. In the books, he also gave his life for Jamie just 20 plus years earlier. He had the same last line, Dinafash Avaliki, it does not hurt a bit to die, which that term of endearment means my dear boy. And I love that that's what he calls Jamie because he's just always, he's always Jamie, just we Jamie to him. Despite all of these things that we've seen Jamie go through and know how much of a man he is, he's still just Myrta's godson and Myrta is his godfather. And that's the way they see each other. And that's one of the most tragic things is that at the very beginning of this episode, Jamie is talking and reminiscing about how his father, Brian, never lived to see his 50th birthday and that he died young and all of this. And Myrta stepped into that role and became Jamie's father in a lot of respects. So we start this episode reflecting on the loss of fathers from both Roger and Jamie. And we end this episode with the loss of another father. And I think that it's lost on a lot of people because this episode is so centrically focused on Jamie and his that we forget Claire has known Myrta a long time as well, and she's grieving as well. And I think that her grief magnifies because we see how much Jamie is struggling with this. So I'm going to break it down a little bit because just the level of amazingness off of Sam's performance in these last few scenes, it's just phenomenal. And I'm in awe every time I watch it. This is kind of a funny detail, so I will mention this before I get into it. Whenever they were filming this, the blood that they use has a high syrup content, and they're filming this in the middle of the summer in Scotland, and there were wasps swarming around Duncan and Sam while they were filming this death scene. And somehow Duncan managed to keep his cool and stay composed and not completely lose his shit, which I totally would have done because I'm allergic to wasps and I freak out every time I see one because I don't want to get stung. (laughs) So the fact that he just played dead literally with wasps swarming all around that they had to remove and post because they were so bad, that was very interesting to me. I had a hard time believing that detail until I forget what I was watching, but it was a behind the scenes video. I think it may have been 
in the bloopers for season five on the Blu-ray that you can actually see the wasps swarming around them. It's kind of crazy. Anyway, so after Myrta dies, Jamie just sits there and he's like, Myrta? And then he says, help me so quietly that you're wondering. I almost tend to think that he's speaking to God, anybody in the near vicinity. Just help me. And I remember an interview with Sam when this episode first aired, and he said that in that moment, he really wanted Jamie to appear as as an innocent little boy that had just lost his father. Just help me. And when I think about that being Sam's frame of mind when he said those words, it just brings tears to my eyes because, oh my God, (laughs) it's so phenomenal. And he just keeps saying, help me. And then he screams, help me. And his men come running and Myrta's already dead, of course. But Jamie's in denial about the whole thing. He's like, no, he's not dead. We'll take him to Claire. Claire can save him. Claire can do anything. And the amount of faith that Jamie has in Claire is what compounds to make this situation all the more terrible because when they take Myrta to Claire, Jamie's running around the tent grabbing every bag and box that he can find that has anything that Claire may need. And he says, what do you need? Just help him, heal him. And Claire just looks at Jamie and says, I'm sorry, he's gone. And Claire herself is devastated by the loss of Myrta. And then to see how in denial Jamie is, he's like, no, heal him. And then he looks at Myrta and he says, I take it back. I didn't release you from your oath. You cannot leave me. He's the last thing that Jamie has left from his childhood and his home in Scotland. He has Claire, but it's not the same. And for him to be so distraught, like that's a level we've never seen from Jamie before. We've seen a lot of versions of Jamie in this show, but to see the level of unglued that Jamie becomes in this scene, it's just, I don't even know a word to describe it. It just makes me emotionally distraught watching it. It's so good. Sam should be so proud of his work in this episode. And I know he is, because when they were doing all the press for season five, he he really was proud of it, and rightfully so. I think that about wraps up my thoughts on this episode. There was one more cinematic moment, other than the completely amazing music that Bear McCreary composed for this episode. Lots of new pieces, weaving in old themes. I really appreciated it. I always notice the music, especially in those beautifully romantic or epic scenes. There is a song on the soundtrack for season five called Alamance, and there's lots of woodwinds in it that hold Jamie and Claire's theme from the very first season on, but it's a new rendition of it that kind of weaves into this romanticized but suspenseful, lots of use of drums. It's a gorgeous piece of music, and I always notice it when I watch this episode. But other than that, other than the amazing music that Bear McCreary delivers on a weekly basis, the choice of reading Governor Tryon's letter back to the regulators, of having that on screen, I actually thought was a fantastic decision, and the way that it was cut was amazing as well. So I was going to read it to you guys because 
I think that it's a fantastic piece of history to read. The letter says, to those who style themselves regulators, in reply to your petition, I have been ever attentive to the interests of your county and to every individual residing therein. I lament the fatal necessity to which you have now reduced me by withdrawing yourselves from the mercy of the crown and the laws of your country. I require you who are now assembled to lay down your arms, surrender up your leaders, and submit yourselves to the leniency of the government. By accepting these terms within one hour, you will prevent an effusion of blood as you are at this time in a state of war and rebellion against your king, your country, and your laws. That is the actual letter that Governor Tryon sent to the regulators before the Battle of Alamance. I found it so powerful and moving that they split it between Governor Tryon dictating it to his secretary and Murta relaying the message to the regulator men. And all the while, while it's cutting back and forth between these two enemies, you get shots of Jamie staring into space in the pre-dawn light, once again stuck between these two men. It's so beautifully shot. I loved the voiceover. I loved the the angles of the cameras and the lighting. It was a fantastic moment, all underlaying with the bump, 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 bump of the drums. It was very intense. One of my favorite parts of the episode, if I'm being honest, and I really felt that this was a stellar episode. It makes my top five all-time Outlander episodes. So with that note, I will continue on to quote of the episode, which is, there may come a day where you and I shall part again, but it will not be today. Because who doesn't love a good Jamie line? And God knows there were plenty in this episode, so it was hard to narrow it down. But I really do love that moment in general between him and Claire, how he kisses her hand and backs away like he doesn't want to take his eyes off of her. And then at the last minute, he turns and walks towards the rest of his men. Ugh, such a good scene. And then my honorable mention was a Murta line that I really thought was extremely powerful and, again, had a great underscore of music to it. It was the scene between Murta and Roger when he's saying that there's no way that the regulators are going to win. If you just wait a few years, we'll all be fighting on the same side, but this is not the time or place to make your stand. And Murta says to Roger, you can how long a few years is to men who have lost everything. And Roger doesn't have a reply to it because he's never really thought of it in those terms like, These men aren't fighting because of petty grievances. These men are fighting because they have no choice. They've lost everything else. Their livelihoods have been taken from them, and they've been driven to this point. It's not a decision that they made lightly, so no, they're not going to back down. And when you look at it in those terms, it's easy to see why, supposedly, as Brianna says, some historians claim that this is the spark of the American Revolution. It's easy to see that especially in terms of the revolution in the South. Obviously, we know about the Boston Tea Party and the Boston Massacre and all of these things that happened up north to kind of spark the rebellion there. But we don't know a lot about how the revolution came about in the southern colonies. So to kind of see that this is the story of how the revolution began in the Carolinas, I find personally fascinating. That's just the history nerd in me. As far as performance of the episode, I don't think I am surprising anyone by saying Sam Hewen hands down, got 
performance of the episode for me this week. However, I did have two honorable mentions. It is the last episode for both of these men, and I felt that as far as swan songs go, it was a pretty phenomenal last ride. So Tim Downey blew my socks off as Governor Tryon in this episode. Prior to this episode, I was like, eh, okay, he's fine. He's good. Whatever. I'm I'm not going to say he's bad. But this episode, I was like, wow, he brought it this episode. Like, this is amazing. And Duncan Lacroix as Myrta, always, always loved Myrta. But man... There were a couple of scenes, especially the ones with Roger and the death scene with Jamie that, oh, God, they're so good. I had to put him in as performance of the episode honorable mention. With all of that, as always, I opened up the floor for you guys to let me know what you thought on this episode. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Crystal Smith Murphy says, Even though I'm a book reader, I was on the edge of my seat and yelling at the screen like a crazy woman. When I saw Buck, it took me a few seconds to realize that was Graham McTavish, and then I got very excited and happy. Murta had to die. He had outlived his story, kept alive by the showrunners just for this emotional payoff. I hated Jamie wearing the red coat. By the way, North Carolina militia members, including officers, did not wear uniforms. I know this because I'm a historic interpreter at North Carolina Historical Site for the Revolutionary Period. Yes, I think everybody knows that militia officers did not wear red coats and that that was a completely fictional portion of this show. But I do think that the emotional payoff was worth it, in my opinion. I think that it really brought it home to see that visually on the screen that Jamie is literally being forced into situations that he does not want to be a part of. I agree. It was time for Murta to go. Like he had he had outlived his usefulness. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that it was any less valuable portion of the show to have him die. I get that a lot of people's problem with Murta dying in this episode is that it really took away from what happened to Roger. And I 100% get that. Like the scene that I was reading verbatim after Jamie like throws the red coat at Tryon, all of that anger in that scene was originally supposed to be geared at Tryon because of what happened to Roger. And instead it was through the lens of what happened to Myrta. So I hope you guys can see partially why the book readers are having a hard time with watching this adaptation because Roger is a really amazing character in the books and he's really been thrown by the wayside for Myrta's character development. And when it's put in the perspective of this kind of scene, this fantastic moment where Jamie is giving Governor Tryon both barrels, that was supposed to be in defense of Roger and what happened to Roger. So. Yeah, we did lose a lot by having Myrta around. Like I said, it did not mean that I enjoyed this episode any less because I loved this episode. But I just want you guys as show watchers to understand why the book readers were so upset about this episode. Jay Mardell Stennett says, I'm glad it wasn't Jamie that killed Myrta. As these episodes roll along, they're just full of angst and horror. I hadn't read the books, so I was very shocked by what happens. I feel so, so sorry for Roger. The Browns are just Awful, awful people. Great to see Buck, too. It took me a moment to realize what was happening. Okay, I am so glad that I am not the only one that did not realize it was Graham McTavish at the time when he was on the screen. Like, I did not have that instantaneous 
realization it took me a hot minute. So thank you guys for easing my mind a little bit that I'm just, I'm not completely unobservant. <laughs> Lynn Warman says, I think that Myrta had to die to further the story. It saved Jamie from having to kill him outright if ordered to do it, if he'd been captured. And I understand that he had already died in the books. Jamie could no longer rely on him to save him from harm. I felt very bad for Jamie when he had to put on the coat. He already knew the outcome for the British. I believe he thought he was betraying Claire as an American. He felt bad for his fellow Highlanders who were involved in the resistance. As for the Browns, people like that always have the hair on the back of my neck standing up with anxiety. Bad vibes for sure. When I encounter people like that, I want to be as far as I can be from them. Yeah, I felt like this episode did a good job with the Browns. It kept them in the back of our minds, reminding us who they were and why they have a problem with the Frasers. And also, I think, helped us to understand that when a wrong is done to that family, they don't just accept it and back down. They hold on to that grudge and they wait for their moment like they did with Morton. So, yeah, definitely should keep everybody on their toes with the Browns for sure. Alrighty, last comment of the night is from Joan Cohen. She says, One of my absolute favorite episodes of the whole series and a tour de force for Sam. I felt every bit of Jamie's suppressed loathing when Governor Tryon insisted he wear the red coat, as well as his barely controlled rage when he confronted the governor after the battle. Jamie's reaction to Myrta's death was heart-wrenching. It felt as if he was a frightened young boy losing a parent, especially since Myrta was both a father figure and a link to his mother. It was inevitable that Myrta would die sooner or later, given that he was a marked man in Tryon's eyes, but the suddenness of his death took me by surprise. I'm glad we got to see Roger take the initiative to warn Myrta about the battle outcome. It seems he finally found some self-confidence after his success defeating the Locusts. Jamie's acceptance of Roger's capability to handle a potentially dangerous situation is a great step forward in their relationship. It took them long enough to get there. I wanted to smack him upside the head, though, when he embraced Morag. Roger never seems to learn. This episode was such an emotional roller coaster. At least we got the lighthearted and intimate scene at the beginning. It was much truer to Jamie and Claire's relationship than last episode's stable sex. Absolutely. After the cluster that was the stable sex in Better to Marry Than Burn, having birthday sex in the tent was uh, freaking amazing. I loved it. I think that it was a huge step forward in Roger and Jamie's relationship that Jamie felt comfortable enough with Roger's abilities that he would let him go across the creek and basically put his godfather's life into Roger's hands. That was a huge step. Now, granted, in the next episode with Roger's mental state, we're about to take a giant step back, not on Jamie's end, but on Roger's end. I agree with you, Joan. I think that was a step in the right direction for sure. All righty, guys, that wraps up this week's episode for 507, The Ballad of Roger Mac. Before I let you go, I want to remind you that on Sunday, February 6th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, I am going live on TSF Obsassnacks with my dear friend Angela. We are going to discuss everything we know about season six of Outlander, including the trailer, any behind the scenes details we have, the teaser trailer, the credits, all these little character pieces that we are starting to get rolling in from stars and anything else you guys want to talk about. So make sure you are following my private page, TSF Obsassinax on Facebook. You will have to fill out all three admission questions and agree to follow the rules to have your admission approved. And please do so before 6 p.m. on February 6th, or I cannot guarantee that your requests will be approved in time for you to participate in the live event. With all of that out of the way, I hope to see you there on February 6th. We're going to have loads of fun and break down everything we have, 
including the episode titles for all eight episodes, which I'm extremely excited to discuss. So until then, you guys stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.